0: me to Hosea chapter 3. While you're making your way there, I want to just offer a special encouragement to you. Uh, even if you are not normally uh, joining us on Sunday evenings, we'd like to encourage you to come this evening. Our team from Honduras will be sharing, and I've had a chance to talk to a couple of them, and uh, just some of the stories and testimonies they're sharing about their experience there, and even the way the word, uh, the Lord works, uh, it's just really a blessing, and I pray that uh, even if you don't normally come Sunday evening, if you can make an extra effort to come and uh, not only uh, support uh, their report, we sort of commissioned them and uh, sent them out with our prayers and blessings, and they're coming to report uh, the work of the Lord there in Honduras. So uh, just invite you to come out and uh, be blessed by what they have to share with you. Uh you. I'm not always. We all know that the scripture um, verses and chapters are not uh, divinely ordained in the in the strictest sense, as the word is. And often um, there are pauses and breaks and verses and chapters that I think are unfortunate, uh, because especially in the epistles of Paul, because it seems like you you lose you lose track of the flow of his thought, uh, and they're not always helpful in interpretation but uh, Hosea chapter 3 is one of those breaks that uh, almost seems divine. Uh, It really is striking that uh, in this book all of a sudden just uh, you just hear Hosea chapter 3 and there are five short verses there but as I've been meditating upon those this week they are so so full uh, and the message is so powerful in those five verses Uh, that it seems almost appropriate that they have been set off by themselves uh, because they shape in many ways what's happening in the book of Hosea. Brian mentioned the word redemption in his prayer and certainly it is a glorious word. I was just looking up definitions. There were two that I thought applied very much so to our redemption in Christ. One was uh, the purchase uh, the, the, the purchase or repurchase of something that was once a possession or, or to take possession of something by purchasing. Uh, and the other one was to fulfill a pledge or a promise uh, as though you have a coupon and you take it to the store and they redeem the coupon. They fulfill the promise that the coupon gave to you. And, and it's just such a glorious word, this word of redemption. Here's, here's two things I believe. Number one is that we, three things. Number one is that I don't think we can comprehend the glory of our redemption, not the fullness of that glory. Uh, I don't think even if we use eloquent language, we are not going to capture the glory of our redemption. Uh, number two, uh, we don't have the capacity to comprehend that. We are blinded in some ways to the seeing the fullness of the glory of that. Even as believers, we can see, we can taste of that glory, but we cannot exhaust that. And number three, our only hope this morning is the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's no way that I can convince you or rationalize or reason with you or describe for you our redemption in ways that will move you in the depths of your being as you ought to be moved by it. And so we are appealing in prayer for the intervention of the Holy Spirit to illuminate for us the glory of our redemption. If you're anticipating any other way of seeing that today, you can just go ahead and take a nap because nothing I'm saying is going to to penetrate the inclinations to be blinded to the glory of God in the old man or in the fallen man. I can't overcome that by preaching. I can't overcome that by reason and by my efforts and certainly not by my intellect. So you and I both this morning are absolutely and utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to reveal to us this glory. And that's who we appeal to. Let me read these verses to begin with. Then the Lord said to me, Hosea speaking of himself, listen, by the way, carefully. Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself, for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. And afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Father, we thank you for your word. And as I've already stated, we are helpless In the power of the flesh and in the reason of our minds to grasp and to behold and to taste of the fullness of the glory of Christ in our redemption so we pause to appeal to you for that divine miracle that illuminating of the eyes and the understanding that might penetrate down into the depths of our soul we are redeemed as believers and father perhaps there's someone here this morning who is not yet experienced and known this redemption. And perhaps this will be the morning that their eyes and their hearts will be opened to the gospel, to the, to the good news of Christ in whom our redemption is bought. So help us this morning for your own name's sake, for your glory, for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. I was thinking about uh, this portrait of redemption that you see in these five short verses Uh, I don't know that I'll get through all of these, I'll try to, but I saw at least 11 11 characteristics or attributes or uh, realizations in in regarding our redemption in the largest sense, but particularly God's uh, redemption in the last days of his people. Now, I I am one of those who believe that God has set apart his people, uh, national Israel, and he will work in a very specific way in the life of Israel as the instrument by which the light of the gospel would be spread to the Gentiles. But in the last days, I, I think those Israelites who come to know this redemption will know it in the same way, in the same way as the Gentiles know it, and that is by faith through grace. Or by grace through faith. And that not of themselves or ourselves, but it is the gift of God. In fact, I believe believe that was the promise from the very beginning. And it was manifested, unfolded in different ways, covenantally down through the ages. But always, always lending itself or fulfilling towards the ultimate promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And we are, as believers, Gentile and Jew, beneficiaries now and forever of that crushing. So I want to share with you just some of the aspects in this passage of Scripture that I saw as I studied in relation to this redemption. And primarily, they all deal with the love of God, who John says God is love. And we touched on that in our Advent messages. In verse 1, we see first and foremost that This is a sovereign love. It is a redemption brought about by a sovereign love. Then the Lord said to me, go again to a woman who is loved by her, and love a woman who is loved by her husband. He says later on, uh, verse four, for the sons of Israel will remain for many days. And he speaks of that in terms of the Lord as he loves Israel. What what I'm getting at there is is it is a love that brings about redemption, that is initiated by the sovereignty of the God of this universe. We can't compel it. In fact, the New Testament tells us who shall ascend into heaven to bring God down, to bring Christ down, or who shall go below and to bring him up. And then he goes on to say, no, it's the gospel that Christ is near you even in your mouth or even there with you. So it is not a love that is somehow constrained or demanded or necessary and somehow compels God to love to the degree that he brings about redemption. He loves and he acts to bring about redemption by his own sovereign will and ultimately for the display of his own glory. That's so critical because we have conditioned particularly Americans in many ways to think that redemption is rooted in our superior selectability to God. That somehow or another, because of our moral fiber, our moral character, we were somehow worthy of the love of God and of redemption as manifested in that love. This is not true. There is none good, Paul says in quoting Psalm. There is none good, not a single one. There is none righteous, no, not one. They are all deserving, rightly deserving of condemnation. And if justice was unfolded as it ought to be, they would necessarily be eternally condemned. I am not an annihilationist. Simply because I don't think our annihilation will ever answer for the debt that we owe for sinning once even against an infinitely holy God. That's why eternal condemnation is eternal. Because it'll never pay the debt. It'll be ongoing forever and born upon the heads of those who reject Christ. So this redemptive love is first and foremost a sovereign love. It is not warranted or merited by anything in us. Even our having been created in the image of God is not warranting or meriting the the redemption. It, It actually intensifies the basis for our condemnation. Yes, we do bear the image of God. And as image bearers, we defy the very God whose image we bear all the more justifying our condemnation so this is a sovereign love notice in the in the context of his command to Hosea here it doesn't indicate anywhere that that Gomer was caught up in her lifestyle and was somehow there pleading for some redemption it seems as though the fact that she had gone back to it suggests to me that she wasn't wanting redemption when she received it She would rather have her comforts in this world and her provisions provided by the things of this world. She doesn't seem as though she's there exercising her trade and petitioning God for his love. It is a sovereign love. Hosea comes out of nowhere, as it were, to take her to his bride. It's interesting to me as well, there were many prostitutes, male and female, in the cultic practices. Gomer was chosen by Hosea at the word of God and sovereignly. He didn't take a poll, evaluate which one was the worst or the best, and choose her on that basis. He goes to Gomer alone out of all the multitudes of prostitutes there. It is a sovereign love that sets into motion this redemption that Gomer herself would experience with Hosea. But more importantly and more more glorious, the redemption that Israel and all those who believe will enjoy. In verse 1 as well, it is a love directed towards an unworthy object. I just touched this, but he says in those verses, go again and love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Yet meaning, I mean, even now being an adulteress. And so is it, this, is a, this is a sovereign love that is directed towards an object utterly unworthy of such love. Now, had Hosea been a great sinner and not a prophet of God? Had he been a man who had, had, who had frequented those prostitutes, a Baal worshiper, perhaps he might have justified in some ways, well, yes, she is unworthy, but I'm not perfect myself, and maybe together we can be better. That is not the case here. This is a sovereign love. God's love directed towards his people, Israel, is a sovereign go- uh, love. And it doesn't—it it wasn't merited whatsoever by Israel. They were as unworthy as every other idolater called out of Ur of the Chaldees. The scriptures say, I love them because I love them. <laughs> you would expect to say, I love them because of something they did. I love my wife because she loves me. I love my wife because she is a caretaker and a, and a helpmate to me. I can, when I use the word because uh, after the word love, it's usually something that they're doing. But when God speaks of Israel, He says, I have loved them because I love them. <laughs> that, that excludes anything they were doing. I have loved them sovereignly, and I have directed my love to an utterly unworthy object of sovereign, infinite, holy, righteous love. I don't, it's a great sin for a Christian to be condescending, I think. But it is the glory of God that He condescends to great sinners. To me, I, I, that's overwhelming to me. And that is, that is Israel. And through Israel and through the God's witness, through Israel, that is you and I as Gentiles having now known this redemption. We are, in here this morning, unworthy objects of the love of God. Even the good you've done, you've done it often, if not always, with selfish motivations which makes your good condemning towards you, not, not, uh, not a mitigating factor, but a condemning factor because that's what we're prone to do. So it is a sovereign love and it is, a, it is absolutely directed to unworthy objects. In verse one as well, it's also an unconditional love. He says in that verse, at the end of that verse, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, And this phrase, though they turn to other gods and love the raisin cakes. Why would you love them if they turned away from you and worse, worshiped other gods? I still love them. That's what I think he means early on when he says to Hosea, go love a woman who is loved by your husband. The implication there is Hosea, you love her. And she's acting as an adulteress and offering up raisin cakes, as it were, to the gods of this world. Go love her anyway. It's as though... Hosea didn't cease to love her in her rebellion and her resistance and her defiance of that very love. And that is, that is indicative of the love of God at work in redemption. He loves us unconditionally. And I mean that, by the way, let me clarify, unconditionally upon whether or not you are responsive to it at the moment. I don't mean... That God's love doesn't come to us in redemption upon some condition, but the condition is Christ. <laughs> That's the only condition. Otherwise, that it's it's unrighteous to love rebels. <laughs> there has to be something to take the unrighteousness of the rebels out of the way, and it's not in and of themselves. So it is conditional upon Christ's death ultimately and justification but it is unconditional in terms of whether or not you and I are immediately at least responsive to it. Now, God's love is indicated in a response to that love, which is repentance and which is obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, keep my word. So in this redemption, there is an unconditional love at work. I think because it's Israel here too, he says, the sons of Israel in verse 1 that it is also a covenantal love. You've heard me say this many times, but I'm always fascinated when God makes his covenant with Abraham, that that Abraham prepares the the mead and they sets everything up, but then all of a sudden, whenever this This covenant is to take place which would involve Abraham and God walking uh, through these pieces of meat that had been laid aside and and that was to affirm the covenant. Whenever it comes time to establish the covenant, lo and behold, Abraham takes a nap. He's He's not awake. In order for the covenant to be a reality, the two people making the covenant walk through those pieces of sacrifice. And that affirms that these two men are entering into this covenant. And the witness is this divided flesh on either side of them. They walk through the flesh as it were and establish the covenant between this man and this man. Well, it's amazing to me that Abraham's asleep. But he has a vision in his sleep. And what passes through the for, between the as meat, as it were, the, the flesh, is, a, is the singular sovereign God of the universe alone. It is a covenant with, with His people based upon God's faithfulness, not His covenant uh, recipients. Abraham would have fallen and failed to live out his obligations in that covenant. And therefore, would have, the covenant would have been broken in that moment. And so it is a sovereign love. It is an unworthy object, but it is, a, it is an unconditional love and it is, this unco- it is this covenantal love. God loves Israel regardless, despite their sin, because God has entered into a covenant with himself. For his own name's sake to choose out him a people through whom the nations would be blessed. In Israel, national Israel, and spiritual Israel, we ought to thank our almighty God for that. Because Israel wouldn't have lasted a day if their faithfulness was the, was the decisive factor in that covenant. And neither would, ne- neither would any of us in this room today. How many times have you been unfaithful this week already? We would have, if our covenant was based upon our works or our contribution, all of us would be outside the covenant of God's grace this very morning. It is a covenant grounded in covenantal grace, the covenant love of God Almighty. In verse 2, it is also reflects here a sacrificial love. He says, so I bought her for myself. Bought her for myself. And he mentions there the 15 shekels of silver and a barley, a, half a, a homer and a half of barley. And my research indicated that's no great price but, but you got to remember here that Hosea is paying that price. And as a property, he wouldn't have been a wealthy man, but it cost him something. It, it sacrificed. These possessions were Hosea's. They belonged to him. And this, and this redemption, as it were, of Gomer would require a giving up of something that belonged to him. That was his possession. He doesn't go get a loan. He doesn't take up a collection among his fellow prophets. He doesn't go to the Israelites and receive an offering and then go purchase his bride. These are his possessions. Hosea says, then I went and purchased her. I bought her with this much money. And don't overlook that in redemption because there is a price to be paid for your redemption. And God doesn't borrow it from someone else. He doesn't draw on it in in anticipation of your being worthy of it. It is God's own possession that will be sacrificed for your redemption. His own possession. That which is His own. It comes from nowhere else. I thought about this this week. Do you know that the universe... Is not sufficient for your redemption. If God said, In order to redeem this sinful man, I will, I will expend the universe, it wouldn't purchase you. It wouldn't purchase you because the universe is finite and and it cannot fulfill an infinite debt. And so if God amassed all of creation, all that existed, every atom in the universe, and laid it upon the altar or the scale or the balances between your sin, it would not not lift you out of your sins. You would be condemned if the whole universe were laid on the altar for your sake. So what possession will God give? What possession will He give? I'm just pausing here to say... It is his own possession that is given for your redemption. It is a sacrificial love. In verse 2 as well, he mentions the cost there, but I'm narrowing it down to this. It is a costly love. And I, I don't mean costly in the sense of great cost, although it is to the Father. But it has a price. There is a purchase price. There is an expense involved In your and my redemption, in Israel's redemption. I can't, you need not go past that. Like I've said, the universe is not enough. It's going to cost something. I see a lot of analogies in regards to, you've heard the old stories about the train, the bridge guy, uh, the raise the drawbridge or whatever of the train and his. He looks down and he gets ready to raise or lower the bridge for the train to cross. And he looks down and his son has escaped his side and is down playing amongst the gears. And he's looking at the train bearing down and he looks down at his son. He looks at the train and he looks at his son. And finally, he has to make the dreadful decision to to push down the bridge and crush his own son so that the train riders might survive. And in our hearts, I've seen people weep over that. And I said, there's one big difference. There's one big difference. The father didn't have to. He wasn't compelled in order to save you to sacrifice his son. He willfully paid the expense. That's the cost of your redemption. And he was under no constraint whatsoever to provide for, to establish, and to maintain his righteousness. He would have been righteous and holy without providing anything for your redemption. The love of God and our redemption involved an expense, and that expense is Christ. That's what I thought about when I thought about the definitions of redemption. The purchasing of one's own possession or the repurchasing of one's own possession Purchasing indicates price. Redemption is to buy something of one's own possession or to make something one's own possession. It is to fulfill a pledge or a promise. And the price and the cost of that is the, is the life and the death of the holy, infinite, eternal Son of God, God incarnate, God himself, if you will. That's the only price that could have been paid. Think about that for a moment. There is no other name given under heaven by which you might be saved. Not Baptist, not Jewish, not Gentile, not Presbyterian, not Catholic, not not North Carolina, not American. There is not another name under heaven by which your redemption could have been purchased other than the name of Christ. That's how precious the cost and how precious your redemption this morning. So it's a costly love, but I love this as well. Verse 2 as well, but uh, I love this. It's an exclusive love. He says in that, I bought her, he tells Homer, or Hosea says, he goes and he buys her, but he inserts the words for myself. (laughs) I bought her for me, not for her. She was unworthy. She was undeserving of the the love that was expended towards her and even the cost that Hosea paid. She was utterly unworthy of that. But I bought her for me. Why were you redeemed? For Him. For Him. All things, Colossians says, are through Him, for Him, and to, to Him, and for Him. You have been purchased by God with the, with the extraordinary, infinitely valued price of the life of the Son of God for, to become His possession. He owns you. He bought you for Himself. You and I, as redeemed people, live and exist for His purposes and His glory. Is that a joy for us? Absolutely. In fact, the redeem, that is the greatest joy of the redeem. To know that I belong to him and he belongs to me. Read Song of Solomon. That's the exaltation in the Song of Solomon. He is my beloved and I am his. Yes, glorious reality. But we were purchased for him. By the way, that's what we were created for. For him. And so the purchasing or the fulfilling of the pledge is to bring that which he created for his own purposes, his own glory, to bring that back into its right function as existing and displaying his own glory. You re- were redeemed for God, not so you could have a happy life, not so that you could be bragged on by your co workers, not so that you could prosper financially. And not so that you could have an emotionally stable life. Your singular purpose for being redeemed is to fulfill or to serve, to display the glory of your Redeemer. He may do that in prospering you. He may do that in the other ways that I've described. But your purpose, your, your ownership... Is your redeemer? He has bought you back. I think of Boaz. So it is a, an exclusive love. In verse 3. I love this as well. It'll be a it's a faithful love. Verse 3 he says, Then I said to her, Listen to what Hosea is saying to Gomer. He goes and buys her back, buys her for himself, as as though to say, Gomer, you're my wife. I, I came and called you to myself, brought you to myself. We even produced children together. And though you have gone back to your former loves and have revealed and resisted my love, I'm loving you anyway, Gomer. And when I bring you back, he says, then I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, Nor shall you have a man, and then this phrase, so I will be toward you. I had missed that all my Christian life. I've read this book numerous times in my Christian life and I never caught the phrase where Hosea says to her, I'm I'm calling you to myself. You shall not go back to your lovers. You shall have a singular devotion, Hosea Gomer, and it shall be me and so I will be toward you. It is an exclusive love that makes the redeemed the exclusive object of the ongoing outpouring of the love of God. If you're redeemed... You have an exclusive Redeemer, but He redeemed you exclusively. In that redemption, He has devoted now Himself to you. Literally, in the analogy of the New Testament as Christ as the husband, you are the bride of Christ. And He is not like Gomer. He is not an adulterer. He will not go seek another bride. The redemption is the establishing of His bride. And his love is exclusive to her. That intimate, redemptive love is hers and hers alone. John 3.16 does say God loves the world. God so loved the world that he gave it only the begotten son that whoever, keyword, believes in him will, not, will, inherit, will inherit eternal life. I don't think God's love broadly and generally speaking for the world which was manifest and displayed in his sending of his son is expressed to the redeemed in the same way it is to the world. Whenever he chooses them, brings them to himself, he excludes the world as it were from the intimacy and the depth of the love that he communicates with his bride with. It would be the same as me loving my daughter... And loving, perhaps, Christian women, my mother and my sisters in my life. But none, none, none capture the love that I have for my wife. She's different. It's exclusive to her. It is not shared among others. Yes, I love them, but in a very different way. She knows my love in its deepest intimacy, fallible though it may be in this flesh, but God's love to his bride is not fallible in any way. And rejoice, Christian, because it is exclusive to you. It is exclusive to you. Nobody loves you like God. You've heard my testimony before, but... There was a time in my life where I was convinced that I had successfully alienated everyone on the planet from loving me. And there was one witness or testimony in my life that suggested to me that there may be a love that was different than I had experienced up until that point. And that was a mother who loved me regardless of how cruel I was to her and to all those who had loved me previously. And when I left my mother and married my wife, I found the same sort of love. And it reminded me that there must be some kind of love that that doesn't get exhausted even when I'm bad. And that translated into the answer, ultimately for me, was that I am not only bad, I am irredeemably corrupted in the very depth of my nature. And there is no hope for this one. But then God revealed to me there is a love like this. And it's only to be found in Christ. And that was key to the regenerative moment in my own life where I began to understand That there is a love of God that exceeds any other kind of love in this world. Our best expressions of love are but glimmers and reflections of the infinitely holy, gracious love of God manifest in redemption. So it's a faithful love. In verse 3 and 4 as well, when he says there, you shall stay for many days, I do think he's speaking generally, broadly here about "You you will... You will grow to have no competing devotions. He says that in verse 3. You shall stay with me many days. You, You shall not go back to those ways of playing the harlot. And so I shall be to you. I shall be devoted to you. Then verse 4, he says, the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince. All these are things that would vie for the devotions of uh, of Israel. Kings, princes, the sacrificial things, the sacred pillows, the ephod, which was a main thing in Israel's life. And even their household idols. This is a love that sanctifies. It sets you apart unto me. That's the redemptive love of God. It is a sanctifying love. You shall, there is a period of time in which my love brings you to me and then you are isolated or set apart as it were from all the other things of your devotion throughout your life. And I'm setting you apart unto me. And it has a sanctifying effect, literally a setting apart effect. And there is a suggest to me that even for the redeemed, there is a process by which the fullness of their redemption someday comes. And it is by drawing her out, establishing her, cutting her off from her former devotions, and working that out in the in the wife in the life of of Gomer. I would like to think, even though we're not told this in the book. That at some point, perhaps many years into their future with Hosea and Gomer, that someday she finally yielded and understood, oh, how much Hosea must have loved me. And she finally yielded to that love. Oh, would the heart of Israel respond in such a way to the sovereign love of their God. Is what basically God is saying through that. So this redemptive love, this redemption involves a, a sanctifying love. If you say, I'm redeemed and God has demonstrated this love for me, but yet you are still after and, and, and having the devotions to the things of this world and the pleasures of this life, you have a great deal of reason to question whether or not you are in fact His redeemed. Because when He redeems us, He sets us apart from the world. And he establishes by his spirit and by his truth uh, a distaste in us for the things of this world and things that would compete for our devotion. This is true about my life, but sometimes I think I've even said this in my own mind and heart. God just don't want to let me enjoy anything in this life. Because you have this thing and you say, this should be such fun and this will be great. Whether for me it might have been golf, it could even now, if it, if I wasn't careful, leak over into wood turning. I just find so much satisfaction in that. But then I'll go down there and put a bowl on and start turning, and it is beautiful. And all of a sudden it cracks and blows apart, and it's like your spirit says, God's not going to let me enjoy this. Why? Because He will not allow for competing devotions and and adorations that come up against him in my life what a gracious God what a loving God because that would be to my destruction and to my depression and so it is to yours So, if you wonder why you can't have the things that some other people have in life, maybe it's because God knows that if He were to allow that in your life, it would rise in its evaluation in your life and draw you away from Him as your singular devotion. And He dare not risk that in the life of the one He loves, in the life of His redeemed. Two more, really quickly. It finally is a redemptive love. In verse 5, I love this, but he says, Afterward, that word keyed in. Afterward, after they've been set apart and they've been deprived of their king and their princes and their sacrifices and their sacred pillars and all these things and their, in their uh, idol, household idols, once they've been separated from that, afterwards, what follows? The sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and their, David their king. I do think that's a reference to Christ in, in some sense there, but afterwards, after I call them out and love them even while they're yet adulterers, after I bring them to myself, and after I isolate them and cut them, separate them out from the world, and produce in them affections directed towards me, afterwards, then they will begin to seek me. Here's what I say to people seek the Lord, yes. But understand that your seeking is contingent upon his calling and his loving you. He produces the seeking, the genuine seeking. There are lots of folks who have curiosities about all sorts of religious things. And it never fails when I talk to those people. They have a hodgepodge of theology. A little new age here, a little Buddhism here, a little works-related stuff here, a little bit of grace here a little bit of self-righteous, just throw it all in and manufacture your own little household idol and then devote yourself to it. It's obvious when you talk to people that way. To me, redemption has its outcome. Afterwards, the fullness of our redemption and what you know now in the Holy Spirit and by the presence of the Spirit, which is the earnest of our expectation, What you know now is only a taste of what it will be one day to finally fulfill and to know fully what that redemption looks like in our lives. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. So it is a redemptive love which indicates this progression towards a fulfillment of it. And finally, this really struck me. It is a humbling love. Not an exalting love. Though our souls rejoice and though we exalt in the Christ of our redemption, there is a humbling that it produces in us. Notice he says there, afterwards the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And this phrase, and they will come trembling. But then he says something that surprises me. To the goodness. Trembling to the, I don't know about you, but I don't tremble towards goodness. I tremble whenever it's dreaded. And i 'm having been forced to move towards it, and i 'm going, oh my goodness i don 't want to face it that 's when I tremble, but this redemption and the love of God produces not self exaltation and pride and arrogance, it produces a, a willful progression toward our God, a humbled Trembling approach and reverent approach to the God of our goodness. The goodness of God. That's what we're coming to as the redeemed. Do you know that's where you're headed? As redeemed towards the goodness of God. I heard a sermon this week or maybe it was a a little devotional but it was talking about how the Christian would be judged in eternity and, and it gave the description of how there would be a book opened and it would be a book generally of all the sins committed in the flesh. And then that would be made public and exposed to you at least, minimal at you. And right whenever you would feel the condemnation were it not for grace, then there's another book opened, and it's called the book of life. And whoever's name was written therein would not suffer that judgment. Now, I think there will be some consequences to the works we did. I I think the analogy they give, all those works that we did in the flesh as Christians would be thrown over in a pile and a match struck struck to it and it would just go, all gone, all gone. I thought to myself, wouldn't it not be a tragedy as the redeemed to live an entire life serving God, quote, unquote, only to meet Him To meet Christ and to have it all incinerated before our eyes. Even while we were still saved because we were of the redeemed. We were recipients of His sovereign love, but we never understood the glory of our Redeemer. And so we set out to work trying to please Him rather than to try to display the glorious love and the glory and holiness of our Redeemer redemptive love is a humbling love if you say this morning well I think I'm humble you're not (laughs) the fact that you said it is suggested that no you're not now I think it would be wiser to say I don't think I'm proud because as soon as I say that God shines a light and says oh yes 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 there's still some pride there Your redemption hasn't been completed. I have purchased you, brought you to myself, set you apart unto myself, and your redemption and the effects of your redemption are underway, only to be known when you come into my presence, Larry. So don't swell with pride. Come trembling to my goodness, for there it is that this sanctification continues. And you will ultimately know the fullness of what it is to be loved by God and redeemed by God. Here's my heart this morning. I pray that there's not a person in this room that hasn't been a recipient of this redeeming love of God. I pray there's not a single one But there's a possibility that there are some that here who think they have been but they haven't manifest in their lives and produce fruit consistent with having been redeemed. And for those, I pray that God would intervene in this moment in your heart. And some have been outside of it, make no claim to it whatsoever. And you are finding all of your satisfaction and comfort and hope in the things of this world which are passing away. And with it, your hope. May God grant that the Holy Spirit might remove the veil, 2 Corinthians 4, so that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, our Redeemer. Stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for redemption. Father, it's inconceivable how we could be so deceived in the darkness that we've lived our lives that we would think that somehow we had a contribution to make to provide for this. It is clear to me, not only from your word, but from the witness of your spirit as well indwelling that the contribution for our redemption was Christ, his own life. This is why he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and made no sound. This is why he yielded up his body to be crucified and tortured. Lord, this is why he prayed for the forgiveness of the very ones who were murdering him. Father, thank you for this great redemption we have in Christ and I pray that at the very minimum this morning that Christ has been exalted, that his name has been lifted high and that none of us leave this place this morning without trembling as we anticipate coming to your goodness. Have your way in these moments of reflection and even invitation as we seek your face, we ask in Jesus' name.